tremendous and appropriate song for us today. A lament, a lament, a word that we don't use perhaps on, on too common of a basis, but a lament. A lament is a crying out to God, a crying out out of sorrow or adversity. A lament. And on the other side, we have praising, joy, overflows us from a peace and contentment where God has us. Praise and lament. Two ideas, two understandings, two truths that face us throughout our lifetime that oftentimes are not woven together. The Scriptures themselves in Ecclesiastes present a house of mourning and a house of feasting. And yet in the psalm today, as we walk through this Scripture of Psalm 119, verse 105 through 112, the noon Strophe. This poetic paragraph as we're walking through this Hebrew alphabet that is the gift of this commentary on the nature of Scripture. This God-breathed gift for us. What Jesus quotes from Isaiah saying that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word of God. Noon now comes to this point where every one of those eight verses in Hebrew begins with the same letter in which lament and praise are woven together. Four verses of lament and four verses of praise woven together. And in the reality, isn't that our lives? Seasons of lament and seasons of joy woven together. This morning in a room of a couple hundred people, some people around you may be in a season of lament, sorrow and adversity in which you're soul cries out to the Lord. And some are in seasons of joy and celebration and praise. And seven days from now, it, it might be flipped. Seven months from now, seven years from now, seven decades from now, certainly. And the psalmist gives us this gift. The Lord gives us this gift. And a sermon I've entitled a summary, The Lament of Praise. The Lament of Praise that Marks Our Life. As we walk through this psalm, we're going to note that the gift that God gives us our prayer, my prayer for us in this text is that the Lord would help us to become more and more understanding and grateful, to realize that death and darkness oftentimes lead us to a greater appreciation and praise in life and in light. Being close to, to death and darkness leads us to seasons of life in which we most appreciate and rejoice and are grateful for the gift of life and light through our lives. So begin with me as we look in verse 105 and 106, this lament of praise, as we see that the lamenting of darkness, it may lead to a greater treasuring of the light of His Word. The lamenting of darkness may lead to a greater treasuring of the light of His Word. If you don't have a Bible, please do follow along in the Pewback Bible in front of you. 105, 106, the psalmist writes, the Word your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. The lamenting of darkness may lead us to greater treasure of the light. You need only walk to your bedroom one night with the lights off and stub your toe and greater appreciate the light or step on an evil Lego strategically placed to target your, the middle of your foot. 
to realize I, I appreciate the goodness of the light. The psalmist, in writing to begin, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, presumes that there is darkness all around. It's assumed in that. The, the light of the, the word of the Lord, it speaks on the other side that we are surrounded by darkness. The Word of God is a working lamp in all the claims of the world to, to light your path, to give you true direction to where you're supposed to go are fake lamps. They're broken lamps. They may claim to be able to light your path, but they cannot. But the Word of the Lord, the psalmist says, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The imagery is made for a child. The imagery is made for a child of somebody in incredibly dark woods walking by with snakes going by and everything else crawling in the woods, and yet the light, the lamp of the Word of God is sufficient to guide us our very next step time and time again. He calls out to God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Life is described as a path consistently. We won't read them all, but there's several spots already in Psalm 119 where the psalmist has done exactly that. He's described life as a path, a walking after the Lord. In Psalm 1611, David says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 23.3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Proverbs 3.6, In all your ways submit to Him, and He will make straight your paths. Jesus comes on the scene and he, the Son takes on flesh. The eternal Son takes on flesh. And what does He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus' claim to be the truth and the, and the life ultimately reflect the fact that He is the way. To follow after Jesus who is the way. To follow after Jesus who is the true path is to have the benefit of the other two phrases, the other two words that he uses. To follow Jesus as the way is to have the light. It is to have the truth because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the one we build our lives upon. He's the one we trust in, the one who came and lived a sinless life and laid his life down on the cross for us. That all who but turn and place their faith and trust in Jesus have forgiveness and eternal life and find their way in Him. Jesus is the way. Our life is built around understanding that the lamenting of darkness may lead to a greater treasuring of the light. And for the Christian today, the presence of darkness in life is to lead us to greater treasure Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Jesus is our hope. Heaven is heaven because it's with Jesus. That's what makes it heaven. The Father's house is good because it's with the Father, it's with Yahweh, it's with the Lord. That's what the psalmist declares. Your word, it lights my path. As we go through seasons of near darkness, when the dangers of the world begin to attack us, when sin and temptation within us crawl up again and again in different seasons, in different fashions, the lamenting of darkness may lead us to greater treasure the light. The Gospel of John presents this same idea at the very beginning. Let me read it. John 1, 1 through 4. In Him was life, and, the, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. The observation of darkness in the world itself is a testimony and evidence that there is true life. 
C.S. Lewis, in his writing, Mere Christianity, you've probably read it before. It's one of the most read Christian works of the last 150 years. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes of before he became a Christian, before he turned from sin and placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there was an issue that bothered him tremendously. He observed darkness and brokenness in the world. But in his denying Yahweh, in his denying the Lord, claiming there to be no God, he had no standard by which to say the darkness was bad. He observed darkness and brokenness. He observed it from without and he observed it from within. And yet if there is no God, darkness simply is. It's not bad. This this troubled him greatly. Let me read what he wrote about a two-minute time of reading. Don't time me. He writes, My argument against God was that the universe, it seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet, of course. I could have given up my own idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God does not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. If the whole universe had no meaning, we should never have found out that it had no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe, and therefore no creature with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning, without the self-evidence of light. Lewis, like the psalmist, he knows that path and the multitude of paths in this world that lead to darkness are themselves evidence of a true path, a light path. That's what Jesus claimed to be. Jesus didn't come and say, I know the way. Jesus claimed to be the way. The psalmist claims that your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet. Jesus claims to be the light. The word of the Lord is the gift to us. As we notice darkness all around us in the world and every other place, let it not lead us to condemn God, but let it lead us to drive and to appreciate the light of God's word, to build our hopes and our families and our dreams and our futures and our past sins, to filter it through the good word of God. Darkness does not condemn God, but darkness by God's gift ought to lead us to greater gratify ourselves in the Word of God. That's a gift given to us that the psalmist gives us in noon. Warren Wearsby said of this text, we're told that this is an enlightened age, but we live in a dark world and only God's light can guide us. Obedience to the Word, it leads us to walking in the light. The psalmist follows up the first verse, 
with the following statement. Your word is truth, your word is light, and I have sworn an oath. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteousness. Being confronted with the truth of who God is, being confronted with the truth of God's word, with the light of God's word, it brings every one of us, young and old, boy and girl alike, to ask the question like the psalmist, have I ever come to a point of committing myself to the Lord? Have I ever come to a point of committing myself, of surrendering myself to the light, to the truth of God's Word? The psalmist, being exposed to the light in a dark world, realizes my decision is to walk in the light or to walk by broken lamps. We too must make that decision. Baptism is an early statement of obedience of one following after Jesus Christ. And the rest of our lives in seasons of lament and seasons of praise is about following after the light through every season of our lives in a continual attitude of repentance that is a gift of God. The psalmist says, I have committed myself to your word. I have committed myself to you. Look over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, you get over to the New Testament, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. If you're in the Pewback Bible, it's page 976. You could remember that reference when next time we go to Ephesians, but it'd be easier just to remember, go eat popcorn. In Ephesians chapter 2, right after Ephesians chapter 1, because that's the order that numbers usually follow, in Ephesians chapter 1, God gives us this gift of declaration of the goodness of our salvation and our secure standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have nestled in here a testimony that all of us share. The fact that we were once walking in darkness, but now are called to be walking after Jesus Christ, doing the good works He's prepared before the foundation of the world. Roman Wally helped to prepare this for us. If you go through our baptism class or you become a member of our church body, we ask that you assemble and think through your testimony. Ephesians chapter 2 is an outline that every one of our testimonies falls into. If you don't believe me, let, it read, let me read it for you. He says it like this, very similarly to how the psalmist says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So too, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Speaking of the saints now, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." That'd be our life before Christ. But verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our standing now, those who've repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 7, So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, and this, this faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now verse 10. What are our lives to look like now as believers who've been adopted, forgiven, embraced in Jesus Christ? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Follow ing. Walk in the path that the light of the lamp shows before us. We've been hidden in Christ, dear believer. That was terrifying. <laughs> if anybody's listening to this, I did not get shot at. That was not what happened. I'm going to preach with the shortest pulpit I've ever preached with for the rest of this time. I'm not going to... No idea how horrible... I felt like the whole floor was... I thought it was over. That's the end, the presence of darkness, okay? The darkness is around, you appreciate the light even more. I'm for sure sweating right now, I'm confident of that. That is more effective than a cup of coffee, I assure you. So we've seen first, the awareness of darkness leads us to greater treasure the light. We go secondly, well, what about death? None of us were made for death. We were not made for death. We were made for life. The Lord designed us not for brokenness, but for life in Yahweh, life in our creator and designer and sustainer. And yet death separates us. Sin separates us from God. Sin has impacted us as human beings. Every part of our life is impacted by sin. Physically, death in the body. Relationally, its impacts are immediate from the fall. We see Adam and Eve turning on each other right away in, in, in marriage most sacred of relationships, immediately be feeling the consequences, emotionally, spiritually dead. Sin impacts us. So death in the world, how can God still use the reality of death in this world? Well, He certainly can. Secondly, we notice that the lamenting of death, it may lead to a greater treasuring of life according to His Word. Just as the lamenting of darkness our souls crying out that this is not the way it should be should lead us to a greater treasuring of light. Our awareness of death ought to lead us as believers to a greater treasuring of life according to His Word. 107 through 112. Let's read this together. 107 through 112. The psalmist writes, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to Your Word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are, my, are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Suffering and affliction he's experiencing, it brings him to a place of confessing that the life that he treasures, he treasures his life that is given to him and sustained by the Lord. It's his gift. And he's saying there's so many pitfalls around me, there's so many afflictions and, and traps that evil ones have laid before me that it feels like I'm taking this life, my life, this gift of you that's the most valuable thing for me, and I'm walking around in public with it in my hand, and my hand isn't even closed. My hand is wide open for the taking. 
That's how he feels. Completely exposed and vulnerable. His life, he says, can be taken out at any moment. I hold my life in my hands openly. Anybody could come and take it from me. When I was a kid, when we would go on vacations, my parents would have a fanny pack. You know what a fanny pack is, right? Especially if we went to the beach. My parents would have a fanny pack on, and, and you put the cash in there, and that's where the money was. And the psalmist is saying, I don't even have a fanny pack for my life. My life is so in my hands. My life is so right there on the edge of losing it. Anyone can take it, Lord. And it leads him to cry out to God a dependence upon the word of the Lord, upon the Lord who is good, and because he trusts the Lord, he trusts the Lord's word. Look what the psalmist does at the end of each of these verses, 107 through 1012, the parallel statement. I'm just going to read the end of them. Notice his trust in the word of the Lord, even though death is all around him and may be soon his fate. He says, O Lord, according to your word, verse 108, and teach me your rules, 109, but I did not forget your law, 110, but I did not stray from your precepts, 111, the whole verse, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. And 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. It leads him to say, as the, the New American and the New King James translate that, revive me. Revive me, Lord. The psalmist is a point of being stressed out. And what does he do when he's at the end of his rope? But he can barely move forward. He offers a free will offering. To the Lord. I don't know how your life is, but when I find myself getting incredibly busy, it's oftentimes the things I ought to be doing, intentionally praying and reading scripture that can get put to the back of the line. There's a book that came out a few years ago called Too Busy Not to Pray. Too Busy Not to Pray. The psalmist is so busy and his life is so vulnerable in his hands for the taking of the wicked by the wicked that he takes the time to offer a free will offering. Literally, it's an offering with the mouth. An offering with the mouth. Even though death is around him and maybe his fate, though he desires deliverance and revival, he desires as much or more so to know the Lord and to please the Lord in the middle of the trial. And so he praises the Lord with his lips and offers a free will offering and he asks Yahweh, will you receive it? What a lesson for you and I as we go through seasons near darkness to offer to the Lord a free will offering with our lips. It's good to pray for relief. It's good to pray for deliverance. And it's good to seek the Lord and praise Him in the middle of it. The psalmist desires to know the Lord in the middle of the storm just as much as he desires to be delivered from the storm. That's the lament of praise. He desires to do this how long? To the end, he says. To the end. To the very end, to my final breath. All those that are in the Lord are preserved by Him. And therein all of us who are preserved ought to aim 
to the end. Not simply to the end of the semester, to the end of summer break, to the end of retirement, the beginning of retirement, to the end of those, to the end of our life. Would you be pleased in me, Lord? Yahweh, would you receive my offering of my lips, my offering of my life? Because being close to death and darkness has led me to greater treasure, life and the light of your word. Lord has gifted us to walk to the end, not individually, but as a body of Christ as well. One of the greatest gifts that the Lord gives us is a congregation to walk in the same direction together, to be making disciples when one falls down to help and to lift them up. That is who we are as a body of Christ. That is a gift that the Lord gives us. One date I want to ask that you would mark down on your calendar that's coming up not too far away, just a few weeks away, is August 18th at 6 p.m. August 18th at 6 p.m. We're having what we're calling a family meeting right here in the sanctuary. And it's a time of intentional prayer. See, a month from today, we'll welcome a great mission field back to Nacogdoches, the university campus. The Lord and His kindness and the foresight of those before us and relocating the, the, our congregation facility right here to this location. And we want to make that a time of, at 6 p.m. that night, a time of intentional prayer and praise to give our ministries an opportunity to share with you, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we've been preparing for and we're going to be pursuing in the semester and year ahead. And they're going to give prayer points and how you can know about the ministries that are taking place here at Grace and you know how to pray for them and perhaps be involved in them. The elders likewise are saying, hey, here's, here's where we're at. Here's, let's take a time to celebrate what the Lord has done over not only the last few months this summer, but over the last year to calm and to steady our hearts. Why? Even though this is a busy season, because we're too busy not to stop and pray and praise. Just like the psalmist who finds himself near death, he's too busy not to offer a free will offering to the Lord. Likewise, as a church body, before we flex back to 915 and 1045 service, this is the last Sunday of next month, we're going to take a time together to pause, to reflect, and to pray to the Lord because we're too busy not to praise. We're too busy not to praise. The psalmist, he cannot control the outcome of his life. He can't control if this takes his life, but he can control his desire to hide in the Lord in the middle of the storm. That's what this psalm is about. That's what our life is about. To trust the Lord in his word. To believe what Jesus says, that man does not live by bread alone, as he quotes the scriptures in Deuteronomy 8. But to live by every word of God. The lament of praise. Would you pray with me before we discuss our next steps? Father, we desire to be a people who truly believe that you are all-powerful and good and just and full of love and full of mercy, abounding in faithfulness and your steadfast kindness for us that we have as those who have been adopted by faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to believe those are true as a congregation for those in our body who are going through a season of lament, of groaning out. Father, would you comfort them through the love of your congregation? And likewise, those of us that are in a season of just a sweet season of peace and joy, Father, would you likewise allow us to, to not become too busy in the things of life, but to find time to offer laments of praise. We thank you, God, as you lead us by the light of your word. As we're surrounded by darkness, 
as death will come for us, that we would evermore grow to be grateful with complete gratitude for the goodness of light and the trueness of life in our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you in Jesus' name. Everyone said together, amen. And our next steps, I phrase it in this way, everyone laments, but not everyone personally knows the God to whom they lament. Everyone laments, every one of us. And the lament, how different would we view other people? How differently would we view ourselves? If we believe that the lament that comes from our hearts, this groaning of sorrow, is our soul's reflection of a desire to be under the rule, the lordship of Jesus Christ. How would that impact how we view other believers? How would that view ourselves as we groan? And how would that view how we view non-believers?